So last week, we stopped at the end of Ecclesiastes 7.12. Well, I read 13, but then I thought, I don't really want to talk about that right now because it was going to take longer to talk about than we had left. So I left it as an exercise for the class. So for those out in podcast land, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So what did you guys come up with? the, The comment was that perhaps turn it around, that a person could make something that God made straight and turn it crooked. All right, let's, let's actually put a bookmark there, and we're going to read a paragraph or two and then come back and answer it in light of what we read. So reading verse 13 again, 713. Consider the work of God. The work of who? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That answers your question. What this is saying is that God created the world so that human beings can't figure it out completely. So you have the examples here of a righteous man who dies prematurely. And you have a wicked man who lives a full life and dies in the grave. Well, wisdom literature says that it's better to be a wise man because God recompenses the wise and so forth. But the book of Job says you're not going to be able to figure it out. And the only way you figured out what's going on with Job is because the writer gave you a view into the throne room of heaven and you knew what the backstory was. But if you're just Job, who doesn't know the backstory, and you're Job's friends who don't know the backstory, what they're doing is they are quoting wisdom literature and Job is saying, yeah, 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 I know all that too, but it doesn't apply to me. And they keep saying, but it's got to apply to you. So what this is saying when it says, consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked? He has made the world so that it is not completely comprehensible by people. In other words, there's more stuff going on than people can figure out. And then he gives a couple of examples. He gives the example of the righteous man who dies an unjust death. And he gives the example of a wicked man who prospers and lives his whole life. And what he's saying here is God has set up this system so that you cannot tell what the future is going to be. If you understood how things would always work, you would be able to say, all right, I'm a wise man or I'm a just man or I'm a fool, and within the next 60 days, I'm going to either prosper or I'm going to fall flat on my face. But because I understand the wisdom of the world, 
I can figure out what's going to happen next. This explicitly says you can't. What it says is, yeah, you've been given to live here. Yeah, there are some general principles that you can follow. But understand that what God has set up here is far more complex and far more, I'll use the word occult in its literal meaning, which is hidden. That's what occult means. We think of occult as being, you know, that's not what I'm saying. So, So there are things in this world that are hidden from our view that we cannot find out. And what that does is it makes the world a non-determinant place. And certainly if you have a word from God, as in you are a prophet, then by all means do what God says to do. And something that occurred to me that I actually hadn't thought of in this context, but it fits, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What we desire is determinancy. We desire to know. We desire to know what's going to happen. We desire to know that if I do this, then this will be what comes about. And what this is saying is, yeah, you may have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you don't have the whole story. And that's what Solomon is saying here. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, he has set it up so you will never have the whole story under the sun. So anyway, I will suggest to you that that's the answer to the question that I posed in verse 13. And he says in verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Which is to say that if you fear God, once you get out from under the sun, you will come out well. It says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. And earlier on, it says, don't be too righteous, nor make yourself too wise. So, you know, the too righteous and too wise is the smart ass, and the foolish is what most people are, and you don't want to be either one. I mean, you want to be wise, but you don't want to be the one who knows what's best for everybody. The idea is it's counseling balance, and he'll go on in just a minute to talk about the fact that nobody is without sin. And so the prospect of living an entirely righteous life is in fact not on offer. So verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So these are just Proverbs, if you will. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? What he's saying here is even with all of his wisdom, and we know from Scripture that God made him the wisest of men, there are things that he still can't figure out. And that's what we've been talking about all along here. 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Seeking wisdom and the scheme of things. In other words, trying to figure out how things work. And to some extent you can, 
but the whole point of this previous riff that we've just gone through is there will always be stuff that you're not going to be able to figure out, no matter how wise. He also set himself to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Stop there for a minute, because we're going to get into deep water here in 26. He isn't planning to be wicked or mad. He simply wants to understand it. As I was reading this this afternoon, it reminded me of a thing published years ago, how people always underestimate the stupidity of people. He says that in any population, the number of stupid people is sigma. And sigma is equally distributed among all groups. In other words, you find the same sigma under college professors, college students, laborers in college, that's the same proportion of truly stupid people. And the thing that he says is people always completely underestimate the number of stupid people. And it's always a surprise when you run into one because you never expect it. And so that's sort of what he's saying here, that he said is mind to know wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness, and he's not going to be able to fully understand it. Verse 26. All right, here we go. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, the thing you need to correlate this with is Proverbs where you have the young man who is wandering down the street and the gal says, my husband is gone away on a long trip, won't be back for a month, come on in. Take it in that context. Because he says the sinner is taken by her. And he will say later on that there's nothing better than to live a peaceful life with the woman you love. What we're talking about here is in the context of the fool in Proverbs who gets ensnared by a wayward woman. 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Again, he's trying to figure things out to find the scheme of things. How do things work? 27 again now. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. In other words, I've been looking and looking and I haven't found it. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I don't know who they is. In the Hebrew, the they is masculine, so let's read it that way. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they, men, have sought out many schemes. Mm-hmm. So and the idea is whatever God has made crooked, no one can make straight. Even though man is made upright originally, what we wind up doing is looking for angles would be the modern way of saying it. Everybody got an angle and the angles are not always righteous. Chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. One of the things about wisdom is it is correlated with age. Not exclusively, but there's a heavy correlation of wisdom with age. Not all the aged are wise, but most wise are aged. 
and it makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. A young man may be very hard and very driven. As you get older, what happens is if you get wise, you soften and you realize that some of the things that you thought were worth fighting about aren't worth fighting about really. So a young man who's all full of hormones and enthusiasm and so forth may have a hard face because he tends to be combative about things, whereas an older man who has attained wisdom can sort of sit back and say, okay, I see what's going on here, and this is not necessarily something we need to fight about, and this is not something that we need to get upset about. That's what I get from this. The comment was, as you get older and you walk with the Lord more often, the Lord comes through you more, which is more mellow, I guess we would be a way to describe it. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean wishy-washy. You can be righteous without being harsh, and I think that's what it's talking about, is you figure out a way to do the right thing and say the right thing without being harsh about it. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, the king. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Be not hasty to go from his presence. In light of the next sentence, I think that means don't buck him. In other words, when it says, be not hasty to go from his presence, which is to say, leave him and plot against him or leave him and rebel against him. I think that's what that may mean. So in that sense, be not hasty to go from his presence. In other words, don't leave his presence with the idea of resisting him. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. So what he's saying there is the king is able to exercise summary justice. So if the king decides that he isn't happy with what you're doing, you're in big trouble. One of the things it says in Proverbs is a land is happy when it has a humble king, which is to say a king who will listen to advice and rebuke. But the point of this particular thing is, if you're going to buck the king and he decides he doesn't like what you're going to do, there is no one to appeal to. He is supreme, and if you have gotten crosswise of him, you're in big trouble. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man has had power over man to his hurt. So we started off with a king. We end up with a man having power over a man. We're talking about human power relationships. And in the middle, he's talking about First off, you better be very careful when you go from the presence of the king, which is to say you abandon the king and strike off on your own. Because if the king finds that out, you're going to be in deep trouble. 
Now, this is genealogy here as I'm reading this. Kings are, of course, only human. And kings will often do things that are not wise or not sound. And if you are involved with a king who is doing something dumb, there is a way to deal with that that doesn't necessarily involve open rebellion. The idea here is that a king, through the application of wisdom, not his wisdom, but somebody else's wisdom, may be induced to change his mind without damaging people. And then, of course, no man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Retaining the spirit means keeping your spirit as opposed to having your spirit separate from the clay, and the clay collapses. And there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. To it, it is wickedness. So war is one of those things that happens to a nation, and if you're caught up in a war, things are very likely to be beyond your control. If you're up to your hips in Babylonians, you may not have control of your destiny anymore. At the end of it, in verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when a man had power over man to his hurt. Now, that's ambiguous. A man having power over another to his hurt can be somebody has power over you to damage you, or it can be somebody has power over you and his power damages him. And the example I would give is an unjust slaveholder. If you own a slave or servants and you treat them unjustly, you have power over them, but the one who is hurt is you. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Now we have just finished talking earlier about the inscrutability of the created world that God has set up. And he set it up so you aren't going to be able to figure things out completely. So now here in, in verses 10 through 13, he is falling back on proverbial wisdom. And the proverbial wisdom says, in the long run, the righteous come out okay, and in the long run, the wicked fall. But he's just said in the previous section that God has set it up so it doesn't always work that way, to prevent everyone from figuring things out. The other thing it's saying here is because the flash to bang time on evil is long, people believe that they can get away with it. And furthermore, because you will see people who have been wicked and die peacefully in their beds, that will tempt people to follow the evil desires of their heart because they think that there are no consequences. It's just like what Paul said. If there's no resurrection from the dead, we are the most miserable of all people because we are not taking advantage of all the stuff we could take advantage of on this life. If there's no resurrection, then 
we're really stupid not to grab all we can grab with both hands. That's what Solomon is saying here, is because there is a long lead time, and that lead time often extends past the grave, where we can no longer see it. There are going to be people who he would regard as foolish, who will organize their lives in wickedness, thinking only of themselves. They will become essentially bandits, because that's the, the smart play if there's not going to be any consequences. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So what he's saying there is there is a vanity that takes place on earth under the sun. And that goes back to the idea that the world is designed to be far more complex than humans can figure out. And so what he's saying, all right, it's good to do good and it's bad to do bad, so don't do bad and do do good. Here he's saying, well, sometimes that doesn't work. And that is vanity or ephemeral, which is to say, as I said earlier, the consequences of your actions on earth extend past the day of death. That's the vanity part, which is ephemeral, insubstantial. Remember, vanity is not necessarily pride. It's insubstantial, ephemeral, non-permanent, that kind of thing. Verse 15, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. It's sort of like the old phrase that the race is not to the swift and the contest not to the strong, but that's the way to bet. That's what he's saying here. Sometimes the wicked are going to get smashed. Sometimes the righteous are going to prosper. But that's not the way to bet. The way to bet is to enjoy what God has given you, live a righteous life as best you can, and go through this life taking as much joy from it as you can get. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. And I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Which is what we started with, clear back at the beginning of the hour, where it says, what God has made crooked, no man can make straight. And so at the end of all of this, going through Proverbs, saying sometimes the righteous win, sometimes the wicked win, but the percentage play, if you will, is to be righteous. But at the end of the day, he's saying, that's the best I can do, and I am still not sure. How neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, which is to say he is a wise man who is pondering day and night and chewing on it constantly. He's not resting from the labor of trying to figure this out. Fear is really easy because this is a very uncertain existence, and there's always the temptation to be afraid and to be defensive and to be wary. 
And he says, first off, consider the lilies of the field. Solomon is not arrayed like one of these, yet they'll be thrown in the furnace tomorrow. You're far more important to God than one of these lilies. And so if God takes care of the birds and the lilies and the bees and all that kind of stuff, he can take care of you. Don't worry about it. That's sort of thing one. And then thing two is you're never actually going to figure it out. So don't worry. And the whole thing is don't worry. Fear not. Don't fret. You can't add a single inch to your height by worry. So don't. It isn't that he's in control as in Calvinism. It's that he loves you and he will care for you. Kent Harness said something 15 years ago that I have never forgotten about Calvinism. He says, God does not micromanage the evil in this world. So you have free will. Stuff is going to happen. He has created this place to be very complex, but he's also told you don't be afraid. Go through it with joy. Do the best you're able to. Don't be a wise ass and don't be a fool. Just go through it with joy and trust God that he'll take care of you. And that's different than God's in control. I never like that phrase because it feels to me like Calvinism. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. He's not called the problem solver. And comforter implies that you need comforting, but not a Calvinist. That's why I sort of bristle when people say, God's in charge. God is good, and he will comfort you as you go through all this. But if you need it, he will also throw you into the soup. So it is not the case that he's a cosmic sugar daddy. He's doing stuff that he thinks is important for you. God is certainly in charge, but God's in control implies that God is micromanaging all this stuff. and That I don't care for. It's just something that rubs me the wrong way. I'm not going to go on to chapter 9 at this point since we only have a minute. What's going to happen next is he's sort of midlife here, and at the end he starts to contemplate the end of his life. So that will be good.